Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, it was a wacky wild card weekend in the NFL. We'll discuss who's moving on and who's going home in episode 18 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. It is great to be back on The Bridge. I know another long hiatus. I'm sure you've all been waiting on pins and needles for my return. But do not fear, I have returned better than ever before to start 2016. I do indeed like that. Not as much as the Redskins probably liked what happened to them in Kirk Cousins' first playoff start, but we will get to that soon enough. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, all those good things. It's been a long time since we last chatted, so let me get those remarks off the table, and I guess we can get right into the show. So rather than talk about everything that's happened in the past couple of months, thought I'd just center in on the National Football League because we are in the crux of the playoffs, entering into the divisional games, everybody is tuned in on football, and the bridge is as well. You like that? You like that? I hope you do. If not, I don't know what to tell you because we are going to be centering in on football tonight, and I have a special guest to help me out in doing so. Jason Kaidel, a CBSSports.com columnist, will join the program, a friend of the bridge. We will be talking about football this time instead of baseball as we did last time. We promised you we would discuss football and the time has come. He is a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan and I am a huge Denver Broncos fan. So we got a little something going on Sunday night's game, which we'll get into at the end of our interview so you guys can pick what side you're on based on what our rewards will be. You like that? You like that? Now, it was a pretty wild, wild card weekend to start the NFL playoffs. Couple things went according to plan, that being that the Houston Texans don't really belong in the playoffs with a 30 to nothing loss to the Kansas City Chiefs to start things off. The Chiefs had a lot to celebrate, of course, after a 30 to nothing shutout win, but they were not sure who they would be playing. That would be decided in the Steelers-Bengals game to follow, and what a game it was. I shouldn't say that because it was pretty ugly in the early going. The Steelers took control and had a 15-point lead, 15 nothing, as a matter of fact, looked to be in control of the game. A play did go against the Steelers. It was a dirty hit to Giovanni Bernard that caused him to fumble the football, but they did not allow the fumble because of the penalty that came with the dirty hit. So Pittsburgh missed out on a touchdown there because they would have returned it back once they got the fumble and ran it the length of the field. 
It was a chippy game. Scranton's own son, Mike Munchak, who is renowned in NEPA, of course, for the Hall of Fame accolades that he's had and what he's been able to do in the National Football League. Got into a little tiff with one of the Bengals players on the sidelines. Pulled his hair. Wasn't really too happy with him. He got a penalty for that. Later in the game, Vontez Perfect on the Cincinnati Bengals made a vicious hit on Pittsburgh Steelers starting quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, which knocked him out of the game for that time period. After the hit, it actually looked like that he broke his collarbone. The way he was holding his arm, they took him out on the cart. Bengals fans threw some water bottles at him just for kicks. He goes out of the game. Landry Jones comes in, ends up throwing an interception to Vontez Perfect, who then takes the ball the length of the field, even though the play was dead, runs into the tunnel, heads to the locker room with the ball, and for whatever reason, doesn't get penalized for delay of game for that. But at that point, it looks like the game is over. The Bengals have the ball with less than a minute 30 to go. Steelers did have all three of their timeouts, so the Bengals just had to run a couple plays, hope to get a first down. They were already in field goal range. They give the ball to running back Jeremy Hill on the first play, and he fumbles. Great. Steelers get the ball back. Big Ben is just throwing little dinks and dunks as passes because he's back in the game now with a hurt shoulder. To make a long story short, he does let go for a deeper pass to Antonio Brown. It falls incomplete. I believe that would have been going to third down. But Vontez Perfect comes over and dips his head into Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown falls to the ground lifeless, ends up with a concussion, has to leave the game. Perfect gets a 15-yard penalty for that, and then into discussion, and with an injured player on the field, some coaches come onto the field as well. One of those coaches, Joey Porter, former Pittsburgh Steeler player and now defensive coach or linebackers coach, something along the lines of that. He's on the field chirping at the Bengals, just like he used to do as a defensive player. Players don't take too kindly he's on the field. Adam Jones, Adam Pacman Jones on the Cincinnati Bengals goes to push him, push him off the field. He's yelling at the refs that he's on the field. And in doing the pushing, he strikes a referee. So the referee throws his flag. So with no time coming off the clock, the Pittsburgh Steelers move 30 yards on top of two personal foul penalties and get into field goal range. They make the field goal. They go up by two. The Cincinnati Bengals season is over. You like that? You like that? I hope Bengals fans do, but I'm sure Steelers fans definitely like the outcome of that game. Really had no business winning that game. It looked to be over, but they move on and will play in the divisional game on Sunday. Then we had the Seahawks at the Minnesota Vikings in the third coldest game in NFL league history with a minus six to start the game and a wind chill of 22, I believe. Horrendous. Who would go to this football game? And the place was packed, of course, with Minnesota Vikings fans. Beer was freezing. They had to warm it up like homelesses while they were tailgating on these barrels where they had fires going. Miserable game. 3 nothing at the half just to show you how exciting the offensive part of the game was because of the weather. Three field goals into the fourth quarter, three of which came off the foot of Blair Walsh, the kicker for the Minnesota Vikings. He made one from 22, 43, and 47. 
But it seemed like that might be enough to hold on for the win. In the fourth quarter, Russell Wilson had another Russell Wilson-esque moment where a bad snap flew over his shoulder. He had to run about 18 yards back to gather it. Instead of just falling on it and taking the sack, he picks the ball up, scrambles, and finds Tyler Lockett for what ended up being a 30-plus yard pass play that put the Seahawks in goal line position. They end up scoring with a touchdown to Doug Baldwin to cut the game to two points. Then the next Vikings possession, they hand the ball off to Adrian Peterson, the league leader in rush yards this season, and he fumbles. You like that? You like that? That leads to a field goal with about eight minutes left in the game, and the Seahawks are up by a point. The game, of course, still not over, but very difficult to move the ball up and down the field on the offensive side. Teddy Bridgewater, the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, one last chance to make things happen on a final drive. Seahawks end up getting a pass interference penalty against them. Kyle Rudolph, the tight end for the Vikings, catches the ball, moves it downfield. They're in field goal range. This is going to be it. Now, what's interesting is they don't have any timeouts left. There's like 20 seconds left in the game. And instead of them taking a run or having the quarterback move the ball to wherever the kicker likes it, which a lot of teams do. They just decide we're just going to go out and kick the field goal because they would have to run that running play or whatever the dive, get to the line and spike it, which probably wouldn't have taken too long. And then obviously bring out the field goal unit for the field goal. They decide everything else is too risky. They just want to kick the field goal. It's from 27 away, I believe, on the left hash. Blair Walsh, who was three for three leading into this kick, misses it left. Didn't put any movement on it at all. It actually hooked a little bit left. As I referred to him immediately after the game, the Scott Norwood of the North. You like that? You like that? And that stems from watching the ESPN 30 for 30, The Four Falls of Buffalo, which was a great documentary about those Bills teams that went to four straight Super Bowls and couldn't win one. Of course, Norwood had the opportunity to kick the game-winning field goal in that first Super Bowl that they were at against the New York Giants, and he missed that wide right. I'm just so witty sometimes. What can I say? You like that? You like that? So the Seahawks end up surviving, and it's just another postseason game for them where they need a miracle, and it ends up happening. They got a miracle three or four times last year against the Green Bay Packers to go to the Super Bowl, and they got a miracle already in the wildcard game. We haven't even hit the regular division playoff games yet. The last game of the night was against the Packers and the Redskins, and if you've noticed, I've been featuring Redskins quarterback Kurt Cousins' comment to the press after they made a comeback victory earlier in the season that really steamrolled their winning streak and their winning ways and ended up leading them to an NFC East division title. You like that? You like that? Now, while the NFC East was horrendous, Kurt Cousins did put together a pretty impressive season, especially at home, and he was having the numbers that we all expected Aaron Rodgers to have this season, but he did not. But the way things were going in the wild card weekend, you had three away teams winning their games, three teams that were actually favored in Vegas. This game, I believe the Packers, the away team, were actually getting a point for most of the week. I don't know if that might have changed before the game, but it was basically a pick 'em at the start of the game. And the start of the game just didn't go well for the Packers. They end up giving up a safety. Then it looks like the Redskins are going to score a touchdown almost immediately following that when Deshaun Jackson was headed toward the end zone. And in only Deshaun Jackson fashion, 
he kind of tucks the ball in as he's heading for the pylon instead of reaching out or diving for it. He like puts it behind the right side of his back, pretty much the worst position you could have for the football in that instance. And though his foot does slide around the pylon, the ball never crosses it. So they mark the ball at like the one. They run a couple running plays, which gets stuffed and is why no fantasy football owner owned a Redskins running back after about week six. And it leads to a field goal. So instead of getting huge momentum, it's just 5 nothing Redskins. But even still, not bad. You like that? You like that? They do score later in the second quarter. Jordan Reed, their tight end, had an amazing game again. So they get six more points to go up 11 nothing. But then the Packers answer with 17 straight points of their own including Mike McCarthy, the Packers head coach, calling some timeouts near the end of the first half to get the ball back and score again because the Redskins were getting the ball to start the second half. Really just took the momentum out of the Redskins and their fans and ended up almost cruising to a victory, 35-18. You like that? You like that? I guess not. So that's what happened in wildcard weekend, and that sets up what is happening for this weekend in the divisional matchups. You like that? You like that? But now that I'm done rambling, let's stop that and switch gears and listen to Jason Kaidel talk a little bit about what happened in Wildcard Weekend and what we could look forward to in the opening round of the divisional playoffs. If you're interested in reading some of his work regarding the National Football League and other goings-on, you can follow him on Twitter at Jason Kaidel. That is J-A-S-O-N-K-E-I-D-E-L. It was a pleasure to have him back on the show, and hopefully he can shed a little bit better light of what I just told you about the National Football League. He had a lot of great things to say, and it's definitely going to be an exciting weekend of football coming up soon. You like that? You like that? So we're here with Jason Kaidel, the CBSSports.com columnist, friend of the show, making his return to the program. And he is a happy man today after what went down with his favorite football team yesterday. We told you we'd be talking football, and now's the time. Good, sir. How have you been? I couldn't be better, sir. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well. Starting the new year off right, it's good to talk to you. And as we promised the loyal listeners, we would eventually get to football. And what better of a time than to talk about your Pittsburgh Steelers coming away with the wild card victory over the Cincinnati Bengals, 18-16 to on Saturday. Well... There's a lot of places we can go with this game. The first, just to let the listeners know, is word on the street. You let all of your readers know earlier before the game that your girlfriend is actually a diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan. Tell everyone how that was in the week leading up to the game and what you guys ended up doing on Saturday to stay out of each other's way. Well, first of all, just a bizarre happenstance of that dynamic. I mean, I was born and raised in New York City in the core of the Big Apple, which is to say Manhattan, and my girlfriend, whom I've loved for the last three years, was born and raised in Long Beach, California. So there's no geographical logic to it. You know, a city boy being a Steelers fan, and of course, a California girl, Southern California, no less, becoming a Bengals fan. So that was odd enough. And then, of course, we played two times this year, and this always seems to be the odd symmetry with these two teams is they always seem to win in Pittsburgh and we always so you notice even though I'm a paid sports writer for CBS I still speak in the collective I say we we always win in Cincinnati and they always win in Pittsburgh so it seemed logical that we would have a legitimate shot to win in Cincinnati particularly when you consider that Ann Dalton who frankly 
aside from Cam Newton, could easily have been the MVP of the NFL this year. You're right. He had a shot. Um, he, he was incredible this year. He goes down. And, of course, and this is another thing, brother. How about this? Dalton breaks his thumb. Who do you break it against? Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> like, Le'Veon Bell shredded his knee out for the year. Who did he get hurt against? Cincinnati Bengals. Yep. So you see what I'm getting at here. Yep. It just all seems to come together. This seems to have replaced, at least temporarily, the epic rivalry between the Ravens and the Steelers as the most violent and heated in the NFL. And it lived up to its billing last night. So anyways, the way we negotiated, my girlfriend and I, is we decided that although we love each other very much, we're not sure that our relationship could have survived at least for four hours last night. So we decided to watch separately. She at her place, me at my place. We decided not to talk smack. We decided not to text each other. We would talk to each other the next morning. And, of course, this morning she was feeling and sounding very forlorn. I was very diplomatic. I was very generous. And I just said, I'm very sorry. And I conceded to her the truth, which is that we had no business winning that game. First of all, why did Mike Tomlin at 15 nothing decide to go for two points is beyond me. Tomlin has been doing this all year. I understand and I appreciate the aggressiveness. I think most fans of any team, from baseball to football to basketball, like smart, logical aggressiveness. And I think we can agree that a lot of coaches are too old school, which is kind of a, a euphemism for cowardly. So... Being aggressive, going to the extra points, I don't like it when it's appropriate. But to chase points in the third quarter was just absurd, and it almost cost us. So that aside, it seemed like both teams were trying to give the game away. The Bengals were fairly inept, or I should say inconsistent, because they have a rookie quarterback, and I believe that was his fourth start of his career. And although he's from Alabama, which is a football factory, and Nick Saban, etc., nothing can really prepare you for the NFL except the NFL. And then the Steelers, of course, have Ben Roethlisberger, but he didn't have Le'Veon Bell. So, of course, Le'Veon Bell gets hurt. D'Angelo Williams steps in and turns into a beast. And then what happens? D'Angelo Williams hurts his foot against the Cleveland Browns. So he was inactive last night. We have two running backs whose names I still can't pronounce. One is named Toussaint. (laughs) (laughs) And how is this for a whole eternity? It seems like we may go into Denver without our starting quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, our best two running backs. Le'Veon Bell and D'Angelo Williams, and perhaps the best wide receiver in the NFL, who got whacked last night by a very illegal, very dangerous, very dirty hit by Vontez Perfect. Antonio Brown is now under the concussion protocol, so who knows when he'll be greenlit by the doctors. Yeah, it's not looking good, at least today. Now, of course, Big Ben has battled injuries throughout his entire career, and he's usually very good at hiding if he's hurt or if he's not. Were you surprised at how well... Given the circumstances, Pittsburgh was able to run the ball for the majority of the game last night? Incredibly surprised because Pittsburgh is generally been a traditional power in that they've relied historically on their defense and a solid running game, a very robust running game. And that has been the formula for success in the NFL for 70, 80 years. Now, with passing rules so bet so heavily toward offenses, teams are passing much more. It hasn't been as crucial to have a potent running game, it's still important. So I was incredibly concerned. And while Pittsburgh has a pyrotechnic offense, they do not have a great offensive line, especially without their all-world center. You know, a lot of people don't remember this because he gets hurt so often. The Steelers have a first-team all-pro center, Marquise Pouncey. And that's one of the reasons Big Ben is hurt all the time is because he gets hit a lot. Now, part of that is he hangs out in the pocket longer than most quarterbacks. He's willing to take a shot if it means an extra second to find an open wide receiver. Ben gets the snot beat out of him. So 
that's a very long-winded way of answering your question. I, I thought that they ran the ball incredibly well given the circumstances, and that's critical. No matter how good a passing team is, you have to run the ball. There has to be at least the appearance, the scent, the hint of a running attack, or else they can just double your best receiver. They can go into cover two or nickel defense or dime defense all the time, and they can blitz at will. So you have to at least have a competent running game, and that's what kept Pittsburgh afloat and ultimately what helped them win the game last night. It seemed like as the game went on, you could kind of tell that it was going to remain close and potentially come down to a couple plays in the fourth quarter, which is what ended up happening. A.J. McCarron finds A.J. Green for a touchdown. The Bengals end up taking the lead, and the game is going to have to go on the backs of Big Ben's shoulders. And I'm guessing at that time, even though there was time remaining on the clock, you probably thought that the Steelers were in trouble. Yeah. I don't know how much of the post-game presser you saw yesterday, but Ben actually had to go to Mike Tomlin and say, listen, Coach, you've got to stop calling certain plays because I can't throw the ball downfield. Right. So if you noticed at the end of the game, uh, particularly when Ben came back in the game, you saw a lot of dinking and dunking. You saw a lot of passes in the flat. You saw a lot of screens. You saw a lot of wheel outs. Because Ben, I don't know that he could have thrown the ball more than 20 yards down the field. So, like you said, he's very good at concealing these things. Had the Bengals known that he had absolutely no ability to throw the ball, they could have adjusted accordingly. Ben has already established himself as being among the toughest, if not the toughest quarterback in the NFL. But going forward, it's it's hard to imagine him prospering in Denver against that vicious defense with Von Miller and Demarcus Ware and number of pass rushers. They have a wonderful pass rusher they drafted out of Missouri whose name is Kingston right now. I think it's Shane Ray. Yes. They are very potent, and the Steelers are going to have trouble if Ben can't throw the ball. But yeah, he didn't get a guy last night, particularly when A.J. Green, and his free, it's kind of a weird search, right? A.J. throwing A.J. He caught that touchdown pass, and for all we knew, Ben wasn't playing anymore. Right. You know, apparently they had this sort of psychic connection. Ben just kind of looked at Mike Tomlin, Tom looked at Ben without sticking any words, then was now inserted back into the game. So it's kind of one of those weird cinematic moments that happens in sports. It's kind of cool. The Steelers seem to have some kind of weird psychic hold on the Bengals. They're not afraid to play them. They actually enjoy playing in Cincinnati. As much as you can, they kind of have their number. If Andy Dalton plays that game, I don't think we're talking about Pittsburgh at Denver. I think we're talking about Cincinnati playing at New England. So you talk about some cinematic things that happen. We had a hero-to-goat-esque moment with Vontez Perfect, who ends up getting the interception to potentially seal the game. Jeremy Hill, of course, fumbles on the first play of their possession. You're going to talk about that, dude. That's the big play right there. That's it. There can be no perfect moment. There can be no Pac-Man moment without that fumble. That's right. No timeouts were taken off the board for the Steelers. They still had everything in their back pocket, and they had more than enough time to make things happen. And then, as you mentioned, some dinking and some dunking from Big Ben. He actually reminded me a little bit about when Peyton Manning came into the game in week 17. And aside from handing off, which was what ended up having them beat the San Diego Chargers, just throwing these small two, three yard passes. That's what the Steelers seem to be doing. And then when Big Ben does rear back and fire to Antonio Brown, the pass goes incomplete, but we get the penalty, 15 yards against Perfect, who looked like he was going right for Antonio Brown, gets him concussed, 
And then Joey Porter, he ends up cajoling Pac-Man Jones to retaliate for whatever he was saying and get another 15 more yards. How important was that 30-yard swing without any time coming off the clock and really setting up the game winner? Well, not only that, let me back up a little bit. If you can sort of forget for a moment perfect, obvious, public, epic stupidity, this is not the first time he's been accused of cheap shotting, as you know. He went after Big Ben's knees last time they played in Cincinnati, you know, for late hits. He's the one who actually ended Le'Veon Bell's season. Now, people are not branding that dirty hit, but he shredded his knee. And a lot of people remember, particularly Pittsburgh Steelers, he stood over Le'Veon Bell while he was riding in pain and laughing. And that's crossing the line. It's okay right. to play hard. It's okay to try to intimidate somebody. But there's sort of this implicit understanding between players is that you don't go to injure them. You want to scare them, but you don't injure them because that's somebody's livelihood. But anyway, aside from his lack of common sense, Patrick, who, by the way, was not drafted, is an incredible talent. I mean, we're always talking about him all the time, John, because he's always involved in a play. If you notice that, I mean, he was all over the field yesterday. He's an incredibly gifted player. He's just incredibly dumb. So that play, I thought, was more than, not more than enough, but I knew that that first penalty would get us in the field goal range. And then when I saw the Steelers jumping around and clapping, frankly, there was so much chaos going on, I didn't know what was happening. And then they threw a second flag on Pac-Man Jones, who, by the way, has an incredible, oh, I shouldn't say incredible, has a very sprawling reputation for being on the wrong side of either the law or the rules. Right. So. I don't know if you remember this, but about 10 years ago, they were calling Cincinnati halfway house, Father Flanagan's other homes, the NFL for troubled youths. Because, you know, Cincinnati not only had Dante's perfect, but Pac-Man Jones, they had Cedric Benson, who's had all kinds of problems. They've had players on their teams well-known for domestic violence and for drunk driving, for narcotics use. Who was that famous Bengal who missed the Super Bowl because he went on a cocaine binge? That was in 1989. I want to say Stanley Wilson. I hope I got that right, because I may have accused the wrong person, but I think it was Stanley <laughs> Wilson. So, Bengals kind of have a tarnished reputation. But yeah, 30 yards of penalty sounds a lot better than 15 yards, because frankly, we couldn't run the ball because we ran out of timeouts, and we couldn't throw the ball downfield because Ben's shoulder, throwing those shoulders separated. So, if not for those penalties, you and I are not having this conversation, or at least not in the same context. Now, that tends to draw the eye to Marvin Lewis. And as you mentioned, the Bengals have had problems. Yeah, he's had problems for, as you mentioned, the defense has been in trouble for many years because of the way they do things on and off the field. This is now his seventh loss in the playoffs. Now 0-7 in 13 seasons as the head coach. There was a lot of different things you could argue because of the injury to Andy Dalton as to whether or not they could bring him back. Maybe that would be the excuse for this year, but I think from what happened in the game, not only the loss, but for what happened to his defense with the penalties, I think this might be the straw that finally breaks Marvin Lewis's back as far as coming back to Cincinnati. Well, it could be. Like you said, he's got an inherent excuse this year because Dalton, his, his franchise quarterback, was hurt. But at the same time, that doesn't excuse what happened on the field yesterday. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, if you can't control your players, maybe you shouldn't be coaching their players. There was a certain sense of mayhem, of anarchy yesterday, and that falls on the coach. So the same thing happened with Odell Beckham on the Giants when he lost his mind playing against Josh Norman of the Panthers. And frankly, I think that as much as their record cost compliment God because it added the sense that he's an old man 
who's not in touch with the younger player and can't control them. Obviously, Marvin Lewis is 70 years old as Coughlin. Coughlin's 69. He's about to turn 70. He's not as old as Coughlin is, but I think there's that overwhelming sense that he's losing control of the team, and you can't have that. You can have a lot of problems in your locker room, but one of them cannot be a lack of respect for the head coach. And I think everybody respects the heck out of Marvin Lewis. I respect the heck out of him. I think he's done a wonderful job. He might be the best coach. Well, certainly the best coach they've had since Sam Weich took him to the Super Bowl in 1989. He's a gentleman. But, you know, there's a certain irony in that he doesn't control his players. And I don't know if a lot of your listeners know this, but he made his bones as a defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. In fact, even before that, he was on the Steelers staff under Bill Cowher. That's right. So if he can't control his defense, which is his forte, you combine that with his playoff failures, we're looking at a problem here, especially considering their offensive coordinator, Hugh Jackson, has been interviewing for up to a half dozen jobs. And perhaps rather than lose him, they might fire Lewis and promote Jackson. And this might be just one of those things where somebody has to be the fall guy. And that doesn't necessarily mean Marvin Lewis can't coach somewhere else, whether that's a head coach or an assistant coach position, because he's definitely proven himself to be good. You could do a lot worse than what Marvin Lewis has done. But I just think this might be what ends up putting him down the road for what ended up happening in the first round, unfortunately or not. Because as you mentioned, there could have been different things that happened where we're not talking about this. I did also want to touch on the other three games. Some of them we don't have to talk very much about, which would be the one that came before the Steelers game, the Chiefs drubbing the Texans 30 to nothing. I don't know if I've ever seen as poor as a performance from a quarterback than I did from Brian Hoyer's five turnovers, but I can't say it was necessarily unexpected, especially when the game started with a 107-yard kickoff return to give the Chiefs the early lead. And from there, it just went all downhill for the hard knocks dandies of this season, the Texans. Well, you know, I don't know if we should be proud of or petrified by the Texans. There's a little interesting stat for your listeners. The Houston Texans are the only team in NFL history to start four quarterbacks and make the playoffs. That's quite a feat. That is impressive, um, or- yes. It might also speak to their, the ineptitude of their personnel department that they can't find a quarterback who can start in the NFL. It speaks to how cynical or dubious they were of their remaining quarterbacks that they would not replace Hoyer because it was obvious by halftime that he was either in over his head or was just having a terrible day or a combination thereof. They needed to get him out of there, and they didn't. And it resulted in a, a drubbing and... They're having serious problems at the quarterback position. And they've got some talent. DeAndre Hopkins is easily a top five, if not top three wide receiver. They miss their running back, Arian Foster, very much. They've got arguably, if not easily, the best defensive player in the NFL, J.J. Watt. Everybody's waiting for Jadevian Clowney to explode finally and, and justify his number one draft status. And they have Brian Cushing, who's an excellent linebacker. So they've got talent there. And I think Bill O'Brien is an excellent coach, but Losing 30 to nothing at home is quite horrifying, and they've got to address the quarterback situation. The fact that they're playing in the worst division other than the NFC East in football, the AFC South, uh, helped them because there's no way they would have contended in any other division. So they're kind of, if not backed into the playoffs, were certainly helped along the way by a division with no other winning team other than themselves. Yeah, they're really was not too many highlights. And that even goes the other way for the Chiefs, just because they didn't really have to do much, as I mentioned, after that kickoff return, that was it. 
their defense, of course, is very good, and they did show that they are very good. And you can't just say that Brian Horner is not a great quarterback. They did make a lot of great plays, and it's going to be interesting to see what they can do in New England when we talk about that a little later. But speaking of defenses, of course, the Seattle Seahawks, for however many years in a row this is, three or four, playing the Vikings in the third coldest game in league history today. The play was the under for all our gambling listeners out there. A 10-9 victory from Seattle. And this is another game, much like the Steelers game, where things were really decided in the fourth quarter and really only a couple plays stand out. Russell Wilson being able to scramble and keep a play alive. Adrian Peterson fumbling in the waning moments when he needed to hold on to the football. And Blair Walsh missing a field goal and really just dashing the hopes of those poor Vikings fans that had to sit in negative degree temperature for three hours watching that football game. Uh, that was just one of those games as a fan you just love. You can sit in your warm apartment and live vicariously through the combatants. It was a lot of fun to watch. I told a good friend of mine that was maybe the most entertaining 10-9 game I've ever seen. And, of course, the final score, it's not misleading in terms of, as you would say, take the under. I don't know what the number was. It was probably somewhere in the high 30s. The Vikings are going to regret this for a long time because this was a game they had in the bag. Even when you consider Adrian Peterson's fumble, even when you consider Russell Wilson's friend Tarkenton-type scramble, which is nothing short of miraculous, they had ball with 18 seconds left. Well, how long was that field goal? Something like 28, 29, 30 yards. Yeah, left. it was something like I that. Mean, I know it was shorter, it was shorter than what an extra, extra point. point. Right. And Blair Walsh is a very good kicker. Now, I actually had an interesting debate with some of my readers on Facebook today as to what defines a choke. And some people said you cannot choke an entire game because too many things happen. And I kind of agreed that a choke is a specific instance. In other words, a guy shoots 85% from the free throw line, and in Game 7 the NBA Finals he shoots an air ball from the free throw line with two seconds left. To me, that's a choke. Right. So I think Blair Walsh choked. Now, they showed the snap. They showed that the laces were improperly placed in his foot. I get all that. But you and I can hit that field goal, much less an accomplished NFL kicker like Walsh. So they just blew that game. And I, I was not one of those people riding the Seattle bandwagon this weekend. I thought Minnesota was going to give them a very hard time. I would not have taken Minnesota and the money line, for those who gamble and know what that means. But I certainly thought they were going to cover the five points. They didn't just cover. I mean, they, they, they had that game. They blew it. And, of course, it makes you wonder, is this going to sort of inspire Seattle to make another Super Bowl run, or are they just lucky to be here? Yeah, it seemed like they didn't play incredibly poorly, especially on the defensive side. Of course, the score will tell us that as well. They didn't necessarily light anything up as far as Russell Wilson's performance. It was okay. They didn't really make a lot of mistakes. He didn't throw any ridiculous interceptions. But it wasn't a game that could make you excited. It was one of those, I just hope we can survive those types of games. And they ended up doing so. And as you mentioned, a lot might have to do with the cold. But will this be a game that propels them and continues to make them be a team that is feared? Because their next matchup in the divisional game, they're going out for revenge in a couple ways. So... I wouldn't really necessarily want to face them, especially if Marshawn Lynch, who was a late scratch for this game, whether or not it was for injury purposes or because he's a little miffed with the franchise. Nobody really seems to know why he didn't play, but if he does come back, there's another weapon that you'll have against the Panthers' defense. One of the narratives 
that I thought was very misguided coming into this game was that Teddy Bridgewater was not ready for the moment and that he needed to have a big game. One of the stats I absolutely loved that I think I read on Pro Football Talk was that the Vikings were 7-1 and one when Teddy Bridgewater passed for under 200 yards. The Vikings, kind of like the Steelers of old, rely on a very old template, which is strong defense and a solid running game. So you have the best pure runner in football, Adrian Peterson. You have a guy who doesn't make bonehead plays, Teddy Bridgewater. He makes the good pass when he has to. And again, when you're 7-1, and one, when your quarterback throws under 200 yards, people should take notice. And this idea that Bridgewater was in over his head was, was entirely misguided. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's just not a pyrotechnic passer like an Aaron Rodgers or a Drew Brees or a Big Ben. Now, of course, he's still maturing, and he'll only get better. And he'll have to throw for 300 yards more than he does if they're going to get better and better. But they won 11-5 with Bridgewater. And between the, the defense and the frigid, frigid elements, and Adrian Peterson, I thought this was a recipe for an upset. And they almost pulled it off. They should have pulled it off. All they had to do was make an extra point, and they didn't. Right. You'd have to like what the future looks like moving forward. It seems like they have their quarterback for a very long time to come, and it looks like they're going to have Adrian Peterson for four or five more years, so they'll definitely be back into the fold. The same can kind of be said for the Redskins, who didn't necessarily come up big today against the Packers who won, I believe, 35-18 or something along those lines. They seem to have control early. They get an early safety. The crowd was going crazy. But then that Deshaun Jackson no touchdown where it appeared they were going to increase the lead. He does his usual routine near the end zone and doesn't get the ball on the pylon or over it. And they end up having to settle for a field goal. And it was kind of an early bad omen of what was to come because after that, Green Bay slowly started to pick things up. And what impressed me was their running game really hit stride this game and was really what opened up everything for Aaron Rodgers, who looked like the quarterback we thought he should look like for most of the games this season. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It was interesting because actually I was 3-1 this weekend picking games, and the one I lost was Washington. I followed the Packers closely, uh, not only because they're an interesting team, but Aaron Rodgers, is, aside from any Steelers, is my favorite football player. I think when he's on, he's maybe the best pure passer in the history of the NFL. And I thought between the injury to Jordan Nelson, which I, I knew was going to be a problem, but I didn't know it would be this profound. They are an entirely different team without Jordan Nelson. And then they picked up James Jones from the recycle bin. He was released by the Giants. And then he wound up scoring six touchdowns in his first six games. So you think your problem solved. But, you know, the, there was a reason he was cut by the Giants, who are not exactly a world beater. And Rodgers has had a not very private rift between himself and the skilled players and the people who were calling the plays. And it was unsure whether or not Mike McCarthy or an offensive coordinator or Aaron Rodgers should call the plays. It wasn't a power struggle as much as nobody could figure out what was going wrong. Rodgers, this is the first time, if you consider 31 touchdowns and eight interceptions in off year, that is for Aaron Rodgers. It's an incredible year for anybody else. Players just weren't responding, the skill players at least, the way they used to. Eddie Lacy only rushed for three touchdowns this year. He rushed for 381 yards fewer than he did last year. And I think he rushed for about 750 yards, which when you consider what a fantasy god he's been last two years, it's an epic drop in production. James Starks is a nice villain, but he's not a top-tier running back. Richard Rodgers has his moments, but he's not a great tight end. 
And Randall Cobb has been something of an anomaly. He hadn't had a 100-yard game since week two, and he hadn't scored a touchdown, a receiving touchdown, in seven games. So the Packers, frankly, to me, were lost. And add to that the fact that they got dusted at Lambeau by the Vikings with the NFC North on the line. That's right. So who would have thought we'd be talking about the Packers today as the winners and not the home team Vikings? It's a very surreal situation because football is not like baseball where momentum is as strong as your next game starting pitcher. It's not like that in football. You actually need the team playing well going into the postseason. And the Packers looked as bad as almost any team, probably worse than any team entering the playoffs. The fact that they came through and dropped 35 on the road at Washington just speaks to the capricious nature of football. Yeah, there was only a couple things going against the Redskins, and that's actually one of the reasons why I thought the Packers would win. For starters, just the craziness of some of the games in Wild Card Weekend where the away teams were able to win. Packers, of course, coming in as a away team, and Kurt Cousins having his first playoff start usually doesn't bode well for quarterbacks when that happens. And to go up against Aaron Rodgers, it was hard for me to think that for whatever reason, he wouldn't be able to show up big. Now, I didn't think they would show up as big as they did, scoring 35 points, and it was interesting to see on offense the way that they implemented Randall Cobb into a running back role. They had him all over the field. They really used him like you would one of your better players in, say, high school. When you don't really have a lot of good guys around, you just have that one stud player, and you just put him at quarterback, put him at running back, throw him all over the field. That's what they did, and it seemed to be working, and the Redskins' defense, which at times this season has been very good, just did not come up big, whereas the Packers were able to get to Kirk Cousins a couple times, make him make some quicker decisions. And aside from some great catches by Jordan Reed, who again had another amazing game for a tight end, there really wasn't a lot for the Redskins to fall back on, and it ended up hurting them in the end. So there's more than enough things that they'll have to think about in the offseason because they just didn't seem to have it today. Well, absolutely. And just to give you an idea how polar opposite the teams were in terms of momentum entering this game, I actually wrote a preview of the game for CBS on Friday. So I was hardwired into this game, very much so. Kirk Cousins, just to give you your listeners an idea of how hot he was, in the last 10 games, Cousins had thrown 23 touchdowns and three interceptions. During the team's six home wins, He's thrown 14 touchdowns and zero interceptions, which is obviously about as good as you can humanly get. Cousins also amassed 4,166 yards, which was a club record. You had just mentioned Jordan Reed, who had a legendary season this year. He smashed Redskins team records for catches with 87, yards with 952, and touchdowns with 11. Those are all records for Redskins tight end. So they really had everything going in their favor, and they were at home. They won four straight. The Packers lost two straight. Washington was blowing teams out. The only cynical angle you could take was that Washington, during their streak, actually all during the season, had yet to beat a team with a winning record. That's but right. I think those types of things are, are a little bit overrated, John, only because there are no gimmies in the NFL. Everybody gets paid. So it's not like college football where you play Apex Tech just to get a cheap win early in the season before your conference schedule begins. You play a road game in the NFL, I don't care who it is. It's tough to win. So the Redskins earned it. I know it's the NFC least, as they call it here in New York, but you don't win NFL divisions by accident, and they seize control of the division at the right time. I thought everything pointed in Washington's direction, but as people reminded me, and I don't usually need to be reminded, there's a reason he's Aaron Rodgers and no one else is. That's true, and... 
this was the Kurt Cousins that people expected to see. He right. didn't, like I said, he didn't play awful today. He played decently well. He didn't have an awful game. But when he was first named starter, everybody thought, wait, what? this is Kurt Cousins. Remember what he's done in the past, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he, he had the season at the halfway point that we thought Aaron Rodgers should be having in Green Bay, who couldn't win a game at home. Aaron Rodgers just looked out of sorts. Kurt Cousins was doing exactly what Aaron Rodgers should have been doing, and today Rodgers reversed those roles, and he couldn't have picked a better time to do it. Yeah, well, it seemed like the universe kind of corrected itself today, right? I mean, it was hard not to enjoy it. I have no allusions to the Washington Redskins, but it was hard not to appreciate the story because they've been horrible for God knows how many years. You look at the people they've had. I mean, they brought in Steve Spurrier, of all people. I mean, that was just an absurd hire. I love Steve Spurrier, but he's a college coach. They brought in Jim Zorn. I mean, Jim Zorn hadn't even coached high school, much less the NFL. They had a revolving door. North Turner, I mean, you can go on and on. They had a revolving door at head coach. Then they had the RG3 fiasco. As almost anybody who follows football knows, RG3 was Dan Snyder's pet, the owner's pet. He had his own playing, he had bodyguards for his fiance. I mean, the way he was treating him, you would have thought he was Joe Montana instead of a guy who had never done anything in the NFL. The idea that Jay Gruden benched him in favor of an unproven quarterback who many thought was barely good enough to start in Michigan State, it showed a lot of, if I can say it, a lot of balls. So, and then in the first half of the season, it seemed like, oh boy, here we go again. Another clueless coach putting a clueless quarterback in the game. When are we going to see RG3? And they turn it all around and they, they storm past the Giants and Eagles and win the division. And then it seemed to me that they had all the momentum to win this game. Aaron Rodgers is an MVP, a two time NFL MVP for a reason. By the way, how nice is it to be head coach or general manager or owner of the Green Bay Packers? Not only are you made the most popular team in the, in the country, but you went from Brett Favre for, what, 17 years to Aaron Rodgers? I mean, talk about luxurious. Does it get any better than that? I can't think of any team in NFL history other than Joe Montana and Steve Young that had two quarterbacks consecutively of that caliber. And not only that, you had him on your bench for two or three years before you actually put him in. I mean, you could maybe also make that argument with Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady, but I don't think Drew Bledsoe has the type of caliber of talent that the two aforementioned quarterbacks you said mentioned. He was very good, and New England will probably tell you that, but I don't think he's up there. But that would, I guess, be the other one, but you're right. To have Aaron Rodgers coming in when things matter the most is not is not something that you see every day, and you're not going to see it for a very long time. But that's just how the Packers do things. They draft incredibly well. They rely on that, and it's worked out. So we'll see if it's it's able to continue when next week they go to Arizona. It's a game that proved painful for them in Week 16, I believe, when Arizona won 38 to six. And I think they sacked Aaron Rodgers eight times. You just didn't see that coming at all for the Cardinals to just dominate the way they did. And it is very difficult, of course, to beat a team twice, even three times in a season. We just saw that with the Seattle Vikings game. Seattle dominated Minnesota, and then they come in and squeak by with a 10-9 win. Maybe we'll see that same thing happen when the Packers go to Arizona, but I think that's probably going to be the best game on that Saturday night slate. That's going to be a great game to see if Aaron Rodgers could keep up what he was able to do today and if the Cardinals will have a similar answer that they did when they played in Week 16. Just to 
backtrack for one second, John. The only team I can think of that a comparable one-two quarterback combination, and this is also contemporary, is Peyton Manning for 15 years and then Andrew Luck. That's, that's a perfect pretty, one, uh, yes. For, that's pretty fortunate, too. That's a good one as well. But anyway, fast forward to the game you're talking about. I think that's the game of the week. I mean, obviously I'm a biased Steelers fan, but in terms of just raw talent and health, I think Green Bay traveling to Arizona is going to be fascinating. And now you're talking about the drubbings that uh, Arizona put on Green Bay a couple weeks ago. But there was an epic, epic playoff game a few years ago. I'm not sure if you remember it. It was, I think, the year the Cardinals went to the Super Bowl and lost to Pittsburgh. They played a 51-45 to game against the Packers. It was Aaron Rodgers in the first or second year. I don't know if you remember that game. It was incredible. It went to overtime, and the Cardinals beat them 51-45. to It ended on all things in overtime with a sack. Somebody drilled Aaron Rodgers, and as he was throwing the ball, and it just landed in the defensive lineman's hands. And he just jogged 10 yards into the end zone to end the game. That's right. That was when Kurt Warner was, was on his goodbye tour and still showing people that he could sling it. He still could have played. I don't even know why he retired, frankly. I guess he was worried about concussions because he could very much play, very much play. Look, let's be honest. If we're looking just at pure data, at pure roster talent, I think the Cardinals would run the Packers out of the building right now, especially when you consider how banged up and bruised up the Packers are. But... One thing that the Cardinals or the Packers, I should say, have going for them is that arguably Arizona's best defensive player, Tyrod Matthew, tore his ACL. So he will not be available for that game. That's right. Which speaks precisely to Aaron Rodgers' ability to throw the ball. So instead of worrying about Patrick Peterson and Honey Badger, he just has to worry about Patrick Peterson. I think we could definitely be in for another shootout. And it's great that you brought that game up because that could be something that we see where it's going to come down to what defense is going to be able to make the stops? Are the Packers going to be able to figure out Carson Palmer and his offense, which has just been incredible all season, both on the passing and the running end? They're probably one of the more fluid offenses in the league this year. It's going to be a great game, and we'll see if the game previous to that can give us something to look forward to as well. You mentioned... Yeah, you know, John, if you don't mind, a lot of people have argued, as you know, up until the end of the season, that the Cardinals had the best team in football, even though Carolina was on that incredible run, they were considered largely Cam Newton and a great defense. Right. But the Cardinals are wall-to-wall by far the most talented roster in the NFL. They've got the ageless wonder in Larry Fitzgerald in the slot. They've got this rookie sensation, John Brown, and they've got Floyd, excellent running back. They have David Johnson, who burst on the scene the last couple games of the season and scored like six touchdowns. Carson Palmer's having arguably his best season at 35 or 36 years of age. They're just loaded, loaded, loaded for bear. The thing that confused me or bewildered me a little bit was the last two games. As you noted very accurately, they destroyed the Packers at home. I don't know if you remember, though, they wound up losing 30 to 6 at home the next week to the Seattle Seahawks. Oh, yeah, they got destroyed. So, yeah. And now that was at home, too, which makes it a little troubling. Now, again, I don't know if they just kind of took the day off because they realized they weren't going to get a home field advantage and they already knew they were getting a bye week or if because they are kind of in a little bit of a slide right now. So it's really hard to tell. And I think that makes the game even more compelling because you've got not only the playoff incentive, but the Packers are going to be looking for a little bit of revenge. And you did have Bruce Arians say after that game that he was actually happy it happened because it kind of gave them a wake-up call of what they have to do and how much they have to prepare for games against opponents like that. I have a feeling that they're definitely going to be ready for it. 
And this is probably going to be the game where people start taking the Cardinals a lot more seriously than they do because they seem to usually get left off the list of talkative football points where it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. The Cardinals have 13, 14 wins. Why aren't we talking about them? Yeah, but a couple of reasons for that. One, and I mean, look, I'm in New York City, the media capital of the world, so I'll just say it. There's a very deep East Coast bias in all sports. They're playing in Arizona, which nobody cares about really other than the only thing that's interesting about Arizona is the weather and the fact that they don't change their clocks twice a year. And then uh, <laughs> um, also, as a little bit of a sidebar, as a Steelers fan, I'm a little bit ticked off because he was our assistant coach for many years. He was fired. And I was kind of curious that he wasn't good enough to be an assistant coach for the Steelers. Yeah, he's won coach of the year twice in the NFL after that as head coach of the Colts. You know, he really saved the sinking ship there. Chuck Pagano got hit with leukemia. And the, the team was totally rudderless, and he wound up leading them to the playoffs and won NFL Coach of the Year. And then he does the same thing with the Arizona Cardinals. But yet, he's not good enough to run the offense of the Steelers. I, I always found that a bit annoying. Oh, he's he's still so salty about that, too, when they did the NFL. Like, he this is be. your life. He, he should be. He uses that as fuel to the fire, which you're right. He should. He should. He definitely should. And if they he's do. He's a good coach. He knows how hard the players play for him. They love him. The turnaround that he's brought to that team has been amazing. And to kind of segue that, the turnaround that another coach has brought to a team, Andy Reid with the. Kansas City Chiefs, who has the potential to be named coach of the year based on what he had to deal with as far as injury to his best running back is concerned, having a horrid start to the season. And then you mentioned before winning streaks. I believe they're now on an 11-game winning streak heading into New England. Granted, they're another team that hasn't beaten anyone over 500 except for the Denver Broncos, which was Peyton Manning's last horrendous game before he went on the injured list and the Steelers which was without Ben Roethlisberger I believe yeah that's right Landry Jones played that game so they haven't really had that impressive win though they have been impressive with their wins so they have to go to New England with the team that's getting healthier and healthier as these weeks go on and New England couldn't have been happier to have gotten that bye week because they're looking to get tons of people back on both offensive and defensive sides of the ball. I'm a little afraid for the Chiefs. I know they have a great defense, but it's going to be interesting to see whether or not Alex Smith can lead his troops in New England in front of that crowd against arguably one of the best quarterbacks of all time. I think it's more than arguably. He is certainly one of the best quarterbacks of all time. I'll tell you what, though, the Chiefs would worry me if I were the Patriots because they're one of those teams, nobody's getting any credit. They're not flashy. They don't beat you with 60-yard bombs or 80-yard flashy touchdown runs or kickoff returns or punt returns or even interception returns. They're not great at anything, but they're really good at everything. And this is one of the few times where you can honestly say Bill Belichick does not have a pronounced coaching advantage. He's certainly the best. I think everybody would concede that, too. But Andy Reid, if Belichick is one, then, then Andy Reid is 1A in terms of head coaching. He's been here how many times before? He's as savvy as it gets. I mean, they're the only team in NFL history to go 1-5 and five and then win the final 10 regular season games. That's just incredible. Just incredible. It's an incredible accomplishment. And they really do everything well. And they've got not only the return of Eric Berry, but they've got Peters at the other side of the corner who's Tied for the NFL lead in interceptions with eight. And he's just a rookie. When you figure that when they lost Jamal Charles, they would lose it. But then they got Charkhandrick West, and they have Ware. 
and Jeremy Macklin filled an epic void at wide receiver. I don't know if you remember, but they'd gone almost two years without scoring a touchdown for a wide receiver. Oh, yeah, and it was, he it was up brutal. Scoring seven. Right. So the Chiefs are very dangerous. And they're dangerous not because they're really good at, a lot of, uh, at any one thing, but because they're just solid. And they don't have a pronounced weakness. And Alex Smith is the prototypical game manager. But you know what? As, as insulting as some players might find that, it's working very well for them. So I know the Patriots are glad. And I know they're at home, and I know they get the bye week, and they can get healthy, not only because Tom Brady twisted his ankle against the Dolphins, but also because they very much miss Amendola and Julian Edelman, especially Edelman. They went three and four without him. I thought Gronkowski would be the biggest absence on that team, but it might turn out that Edelman is the favorite weapon of Tom Brady because they haven't been the same without him. And then you have the Panthers, again, having to play the Seattle Seahawks at home. The Seahawks were the team that actually knocked the Panthers out of the playoffs last year, and now Carolina gets revenge for that, but the Seahawks will also be looking for revenge from week six when they were up nine in the fourth quarter and ended up losing 27-23. Completely different teams from when they played in week six. It's going to be interesting to see if this newly formed, it seems, Seattle offense, which is relying a lot more on Russell Wilson's passing game than the run, can match up with that Panthers defense, and if Cam Newton can sling together another comeback like he was able to do in week six. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I was not a Cam Newton fan from the beginning. I thought he was more, way more of a me than we player. And I think his actions and his career up to this point have justified my cynicism. But this year, he just broke out and became a, a monolithic NFL player. At some point, you just have to buy the Panthers, you know? I mean, 15-1, many of your listeners probably know, the patron saint of the Meadowlands, Bill Parcells, had one of the greatest quotes of all time when he said, you are what your record says you are. And 15-1 is 15-1. And like you said, they did overcome a fourth-quarter deficit and beat the Seahawks. And if I'm not mistaken, that game was at Seattle, was it not? It was, yes. Uh, so, And remember, Seattle had this incredible, colossal home-field advantage, the loudest stadium in the country, the 12th man, all that stuff. Offenses can't call plays. They have to do silent counts because of the decibels. I think they helped shatter, not the myth, they shattered the invincibility that the Seahawks had. And there is a revenge factor. And Panthers want to get rid of the stigma as a team that can just win a relatively weak NFC South division every year, but then implode in the playoffs. And I don't think the deck could be set up any better than it is this year for the Panthers. I mean, certainly if the top seeds win, they would wind up playing Arizona, who would be a very formidable opponent. But if they beat Seattle and they beat the Arizona Cardinals, it's hard to argue that any team earned their spot in the Super Bowl more than Carolina did. I think the only thing that is going for Seattle is the fact that they're not probably going to get a lot of praise and they're going into this game as an underdog. And that's not necessarily a good thing for the type of players that they have on their team, especially the defense. They want nothing more than to quiet this Carolina crowd. And the fact that Carolina is coming off a bye week. I know that a lot of teams look forward to that, but there are some instances where that could actually hurt a team and take away their momentum based on whatever they were doing before the bye week in the regular season. I don't necessarily think that'll be the case for the Panthers, but you never know. You can't rule that out, and I guess we'll find out in the first half of next week. One of the things that Carolina's been able to do 
is somehow a lot of people don't remember necessarily that before the season even started, they lost their best wide receiver, Kelvin Benjamin, who had a breakout rookie season, got hurt before this season started and missed the entire year. They've been doing this with duct tape, basically. I mean, if you would ask the average fan to name one Carolina wide receiver, they couldn't have done it. I mean, Ted Ginn, Jericho Cotri, Funches. I mean, those were the players that Cam Newton was throwing to. Right. And the only thing he had going for him was that incredible safety valve, Greg Olson, the tight end. Carolina has had, say, a dearth of dominant talent on offense is an understatement. They've been kind of flying under the radar with their wide receivers, but this is not the team you want to play if you don't have great skill position players, especially wide receiver, between Earl Thomas at safety, Richard Sherman, arguably the best cornerback in the NFL, Cam Chancellor running around safety at strong safety. They've got as good a secondary as any team in football. So I think Cam Newton's going to have a hard time finding a lot of open receivers, at least uh, in the beginning. And I think he might have to rely on those incredible runs he's been known to have when the play breaks down than normal. I think if they're going to win, I think I think Cam Newton's going to have to rush for close to 100 yards. He might have to, and in the same token, Russell Wilson might need to do the same on the offensive side of the ball for Seattle. So it's, it's going to be great. Two quarterbacks that are mobile, great playmakers, and two great defenses. I'm all in for it. And, of course... I'd be more well, all I agree in. with you. I agree with you, John. The only thing is, I think Seattle has a bit more of an edge in the passing game. I think the defenses are pretty much even. I mean, Carolina's defense has been incredible, and they've got arguably the defensive players, plural, of the year between Josh Norman and Luke Keekley. I think Seattle is more comfortable throwing the ball solely as a weapon than Carolina. And they've done this, by the way. They went on this epic hot streak after Jimmy Graham got hurt. So this is just incredible that Russell Wilson's had this type of season. But I think you've got a little bit of an edge there with Doug Baldwin and Lockett than you do with the wide receivers, just in terms of pure talent, than you do with the Panthers. I think Russell Wilson can burn you from the pocket more than Newton can. On the other hand, though, Newton is 6'5", 260 pounds, and he can run like a gazelle. So he's going to be, even for Seattle, he's going to be a heck of a load. Yeah, what hurts the Panthers, if anything, is that we mentioned that these teams are different than they were in week six. It seemed like once Jimmy Graham went down and then once Marshawn Lynch got hurt and they had to plug and play the running backs that they had, Seattle really did put a focus on their passing game. And in turn, it created Doug Baldwin's best statistical season of his life one of the best mm-hmm. wide receiver seasons of the year, and it brought Russell Wilson to a different forefront of, wow, this guy could really sling it as well. He's not just somebody doing zone reads with Marshawn Lynch. And what will be even more interesting is if Lynch does come back, will they continue to rely on what they've been doing and what's been working? And it's been that passing game and just letting Russell Wilson kind of do his thing. Will the offensive line be with, able to withstand the Panthers coming at them with the defense? Because if he doesn't have time to throw... And we saw that a little bit today where the Vikings kind of surrounded him in the pocket. So he wasn't able to drop back as far. And that did pose problems for him until he was able to semi figure it out and rely on a broken play to find Tyler Lockett for 30 yards. Well, one thing they can't do, John, is they cannot have Marshawn Lynch pull the same nonsense he pulled this week. You cannot say an hour before you board the bus, the team bus, that you're not going to play. You cannot take all the reps with the ones the starters, 
and then back out at the last second. I mean, that was just classless. And then you don't even um, travel sure. with the team. You stay home. It's no, no, too no, cold. With the team, and I, I, I'm sorry you didn't get the contract you thought you deserved, but at least show enough respect to your teammates right. to either play or let them know in advance that you're not playing. I mean, not only did they lose Lynch, but they lost that incredible backup, Thomas Rawls. So, you know, you've got to give the backups a chance to play with the practice with the ones, especially now that they're going to Carolina. This is an entirely different beast from the Vikings. That does, in fact, bring us to our game of the week, the Steelers-Broncos part due of this year. 27-10 lead at the half for Denver. I was very happy, very excited. And then, unfortunately, I started heading home to go back to beautiful NEPA. So I had the game on Sirius XM, and they had on Pittsburgh's feed. And a couple weeks before that, they had on the Colts' feed when Denver ended up losing to them. So I thought it was not a good sign. And sure enough, just hearing touchdown after touchdown and things going very, very downhill quickly, that's what ended up happening. So it was a great second half for Pittsburgh. Antonio Brown made another great touchdown catch. Big Ben came up huge. But now... It's a completely different lineup, or potentially different lineup as well for the Steelers. Now Peyton Manning is back under center, and we don't know the whereabouts of if Big Ben is going to be able to be under center, or Antonio Brown, or who's going to really step up at the running back position for Pittsburgh. What are your thoughts going into this game, and what do you think the Steelers will need to do to contain Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos offense? Well, before I I jump into that, what astonished me about the first game they played, aside from the titanic comeback they made, was that Denver entered that game with the best pass defense in the NFL. The only thing they had to worry about, really, was stopping Antonio Brown. Especially when you're down 27-10, you just go into nickel coverage and worry about number 84. He still caught 16 balls for 190 yards Brutal. and two touchdowns. Are you kidding me? Brutal. I just had to throw that in there. Are you freaking kidding me? Every wow. time they would say on the radio, caught, I would wait a couple seconds. And when they kept saying Antonio Brown, I, I couldn't imagine how many times they were going to allow him to beat them. And then for him to get the final touchdown pass to put them over that, the edge. Did you see how wide open he was? Wide was open. Absurd. I mean, I know he's he's probably the best wide receiver in the NFL. Yeah, being he's honest, great. He's totally great. You, like you said, you have to let the other guys beat you. And it was, it was just brutal that's that's the only word i could say to describe it it was brutal and the broncos have one of the top five cover guys in the nfl Harris. i mean really it's not like they don't have any talent on that team he gave up i believe that was his first touchdown given up since 2013 or some ridiculous number like that he just doesn't usually allow touchdowns but hey no. and brown was open by five yards brother it's not like he was being blanketed he could have moonwalked into the end zone. right it wasn't even close it was very poorly covered you're right so anyway, I, I digress. Unfortunately, I cannot give you a direct answer because, as you know, there are so many variables going into this week. Right. We uh, really don't know first at of all, this point. Antonio Brown has now officially entered the concussion protocol, so that means an independent doctor has his fate in his surgical medical hands. So we don't know if he'll be cleared to play. One can only hope. If this were 1985, he certainly would be playing. Unless he was throwing up and couldn't stand up, he'd be playing. You've got D'Angelo Williams, who hopefully can play. The local Pittsburgh papers had given the indication that they didn't practice him this last week just to rest him, but they were wrong. He was not practicing because he couldn't play. So 
I don't know if that bodes well or poorly for this coming week, if they just need to rest him or if they just want to throw him into practice on Thursday and Friday because I'm one of those guys who I'm not as militant about it as Tom Coughlin is, but I do believe if you don't practice, you don't play. Um, so we'll see how that develops during the week. You've got Big Ben, whose shoulder was crunched, literally, by Vontaze Perfect. I don't know if it's a bruised shoulder. I don't know if it's a separated shoulder. I don't know if it's a clavicle. I don't know what's happening with him right now. They're so, saying it's like, an AC joint sprain as of now. So supposedly no tears. And, and as you know, sprains can go from a 1 to a 10. Right. You know? So that's, that's still incredibly vague. I think this was just one of those they had to come out and say something. The only good thing about it was that it wasn't a broken collarbone, which when it originally happened, I thought that could be the case based on how he was holding his arm. It looked just like it. Wasn't that the exact kind of play that you break your collarbone? Right, and and it it seemed like he knew exactly that there was trouble, and they took him off on the cart, and it was like, oh boy, this is it, but I guess that wasn't the case. Yeah, when you see the cart, that's not a good thing. No, never. It didn't look good when he was being taken off, and then typical Ben Roethlisberger fashion, he's back out there when you blink your eyes, and he comes back in and the rest is history. So for me, I think it's going to be one of those game time decision things. And it would have to be, we both know it would have to be really bad for him not to play on Sunday. Agreed. So to go back to your original question, your listeners might demand a drug test when I say this, but I think the first thing the Steelers need to do is establish a running game, particularly if D'Angelo Williams is able to play because there's no way at Denver with that noise, with that altitude, with guys slamming those oxygen masks, on their faces after five plays. There's no way you can just drop back every play and throw the ball. Not only because it's bad strategy, not only because Denver is good, and not only because of the altitude and the noise, but also because they have DeMarcus Ware and Von Miller rushing the passer. And if you take that risk every time you snap the ball, they are, I don't care how good your line is, and Pittsburgh's offensive line is not that good, they're eventually going to get to the quarterback. And you want to protect Ben as much as possible, not only because he's as good as he is and he's the heartbeat of that offense, but because his shoulder's already hurt. So we don't know if Ben's going to be able to throw the ball 50 yards or 30 yards. So, again, there's so many variables. To answer your question about Peyton Manning, how do you contain Manning, I don't mean this to be condescending or sarcastic, as it sounds, but Peyton Manning might contain himself. There's a reason he hasn't played all these weeks. I understand he had the plantar fasciitis and all that stuff, but let's be honest, that also could have been code for being benched because he threw four interceptions in about five minutes against the Chiefs before he was benched for Brock Osweiler. So Peyton Manning wasn't exactly lining it up before he got hurt. And I think, again, the hurt is wink-wink. Let's find something that we can pin on to him for an injury. As you know, that happens in baseball all the time. The guy tweaks a hamstring. Next thing you know, he's retroactive 15-day DL. But all they're doing is giving him a breather. So I'm not sure that Manning was going to play anyway. I think the fact that they could find something wrong with him was uh, perfect timing because I think John Elway wants to bring Osweiler on as much as he can, depending on how much talent Elway sees in him. But I think that Peyton Manning, and this might be blasphemous to say, I think Peyton Manning might either be on a pitch count or on a very short leash. I think if he throws two interceptions in the first half, I think you might see Osweiler in the second half. So, frankly, defense, Denver's defense scares me more than Peyton Manning does. And, of course, we never would have said that two years ago when he threw for 5,000 yards and over 50 touchdowns and basically took a giant eraser to the NFL record book. 
Right. What's sad is everything you're saying, I'm emphatically nodding my head, even though you can't see me. Everything you're saying is true. Yeah, I think it's funny you say that, John, because nobody says that publicly. Yeah, you're nobody right. Saying it. But everybody knows it deep down in their hearts, especially if they're Broncos fans, because I think what made Brock Osweiler great, at least on paper or with the naked eye, was that he wasn't doing anything to really screw up the game. Whereas Peyton Manning was taking risks at times, throwing interceptions. Brock Osweiler wasn't turning the ball over. He wasn't fumbling. He was just running the offense, handing the ball off. He'd take sacks, and he'd hold on to the ball a little bit longer. I mean, there was things you could nitpick with, but he wasn't throwing interceptions to where Peyton Manning was, who would have led the league in interceptions through just nine games if it wasn't for Blake Bortles throwing two in the final week of the season. That just goes to show you that. That's incredible. Yeah, that's it, it's, incredible. it's amazing. Yeah. And, and that's something you never thought you would say about Peyton Manning. So it's going to be to the point where you just hope he doesn't do anything stupid, to be honest. You just hope that he's able to run the offense, put a lot of pressure on the defense, yes. But when you're doing things on the offensive end, just don't go overboard. Don't try and throw it into a window that's way too small. He's still overthrowing guys when he's got Emmanuel Sanders behind the defense. A lot of people say things about his arm strength, but I'll tell you what, he does overthrow a lot of people too, as far as getting the zip for the short passes. So it's just going to come down to him making good decisions, not trying to go overboard, not thinking he could fit the ball in his small windows and just not turning the ball over. If the Steelers get a couple of interceptions, they get maybe a fumble on a sack. It's going to change the whole game. And if you give Big well, Ben I, a lot of opportunities, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. I'll tell you what, John. One of the things, and again, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's apropos since we're already talking about the Steelers. As much as I love my beloved black and gold, one of the things that really bothers me about them is how tight their wallets are. And I, I'm quite tired of seeing yet another all-world wide receiver flourish on another team. For instance, Santonio Holmes going to the Jets and lining it up. Plexico Burris going to the Giants and winning the Super Bowl. And now Emmanuel Sanders getting 100 catches a season and 13, 1,400 yards every year just because we don't want to pay these guys. And then you have Mike Wallace going to Miami for a $60 million contract. I mean, the Steelers are a factor for wide receivers. But the one that really seems to hurt the most is Emmanuel. Can you imagine right now if we had Martavis Bryant, Antonio Brown, and Emmanuel Sanders and Marcus Wheaton at wide receiver? Oh, my goodness gracious. Unbelievable. And all that time is because we're cheap. We just don't like to pay these guys. Right. Steelers, oh, they probably draft, as you know, better than any team in the NFL. They never make trades. They only draft. So they all do this within the farm system, to use the baseball analogy. But once you get really good, unless you name this Troy Palomaro or Ben Roethlisberger, you're not going to make your money in Pittsburgh. They will always let you go. You're right about that. And it's been nice to have Emmanuel Sanders. I have to be honest with you. It, it has been nice to oh, have well, him. I would think so. He's incredible. <laughs> because it's been humorous that he's kind of went into the wide receiver one role of late just because of the amount of drops that Demarius Thomas has had in big spots down the end of well, the that's season. That's what I was going to ask you, John. It's, as a fan, honestly, if you can be seriously brutally honest with me right now, if you had to play one game right now, who would you rather have as your wide receiver one? Would you rather have Demarius or Emmanuel Sanders? Oh, I'd, I'd be throwing to Emmanuel Sanders, no question, because he's he's even go. proven that he gets open, and there's oftentimes he gets overthrown, or the ball isn't on time, and it just seems like it's been hard for him and Manning for this particular season to kind of just mesh up and figure each other out. 
And I'm glad that Peyton was able to play against the Chargers because I'm hoping that that will kind of give them a little bit more rhythm that they can get amongst themselves to where when he does get a deep route, he's able to hit him in stride and not throw it too far or throw it behind him. And now that they'll uh-huh. have these couple weeks in practice, maybe we'll see that there'll be a change. I'm just hopeful that they can protect him enough in the pocket because another interesting aspect of the game is which type of offense are they going to run? Are they going to put Peyton Manning in the shotgun like he's comfortable with? Is he going to go into the pistol like Gary Kubiak is comfortable with? Is he going to be under center? No one really knows what we're going to see on Sunday, and I'm excited to see it. I guess we could say that. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's be honest for a moment. If the Steelers do, in fact, lose Ben, D'Angelo Williams, and Antonio Brown, I mean, there's almost no point in making the trip. I mean, we, we literally won't have anyone to play. I mean, can you imagine if we have Landry Jones and Mike Vick at quarterback? And, I mean, Toussaint at running back, I mean, and, and Antonio Brown on the bench. I mean, it, frankly, it wouldn't even be fun. I mean, even as a Broncos fan, you probably wouldn't even enjoy that because you'd basically be beating a college team. Right. You definitely want to beat the best. And I'm sure you're a little bit happy that you didn't hear any reports last week or this week though they could come, that Peyton Manning is not being replaced as starting quarterback with Timothy Richard Tebow, so there will be no flashbacks of the last time these two teams met in the playoffs. Oh, now you had to rub that in. Uh, actually, the Steelers, <laughs> people don't realize this. The Steelers were 12-4 and four that year. They we were, were incredible. Squad. They were very good that year. And all Denver had we for them. We were favored by six points at Denver. Right. We were big time. The only thing Denver had going for them was, for whatever reason, Tim Tebow didn't lose games in the Tebow fourth quarter. Tebow Mania. It was a good I time. I forget. It was just a stupid little crossing pattern. They hit Marius Thomas for like 10 yards, and he runs about another 3,000 yards. I mean, he's still running on that play. He's the, still running. The good thing about that play is that's a play that Peyton Manning could run because he only had to throw it seven, eight yards, and Demarius Thomas did the rest. If we see a lot of that. My jaw literally hit the ground on that play. I was like, are you kidding me? This is how we're going to lose? I I was just shocked because that was a 12 and 14. The only reason we were darn wild card is because the Ravens were 12 and 4, 13 and 3 or something like that. But, I mean, we had a really good team. Oh, my just had the minus touch that year. My jaw is still on the floor from that play. So I think it's going to be. You remember that, right? It was like a 10 yard cross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he outran everyone. That was kind of Demarius Thomas's coming onto the Denver scene. That was his his play where everybody was like, oh, this this kid is really for real. Now he's got that big contract, the Des Bryant S contract, and he's struggling to catch passes. So hopefully he can yeah, come up. Well, big. you know, as a Steelers fan, it also signaled something else. It signaled the end of that great team. That was the end of that defense dominant team because Troy Polamalu was falling fast and Ike Taylor wasn't the same anymore. Ryan Clark wasn't the same anymore. So that kind of signaled the end of that incredible run we had of like six, seven years of dominant top three defense. People forget how good that Steelers defense was when Paul Mollo was at his best. We were frighteningly good. James Harrison as NFL defense player of the year. The team was really good. Really good. So to lose that game to T-Ball signaled the end of something, not only that season, but the end of an era. And now the roles are a little bit reversed where it's the wide receiver core really carrying the offense and the running back position as well for both Le'Veon Bell and D'Angelo Williams. The offense has been really what's been impressive for the Steelers and the defense is... I don't know how we keep finding wide receivers. Think about it. Hines Ward, Antonio Holmes, Hutchinson Burris, Mike Wallace, Antonio Brown, Emmanuel Sanders. 
I mean, Weeks just keeps playing. Marcus Wheaton is a number three, but he could be a number one in some players. Martavis Bryant is a number one wide receiver on most NFL teams. I mean, we just back into wide receivers. It's scary how good we are drafting them. It's been great to watch, and I know there's going to be enough spectacular plays that are made on Sunday, much like the one Bryant made in the last game. The butt catch, as some people that are calling catch it, was incredible. And a lot of people forget that. A lot, yeah. Some people have called it the butt, the butt catch. A lot of people forgot about that play because of what ended up happening in the fourth quarter. But that was a turning point in itself. I haven't seen a catch like that—an early ESPY nomination, if you will. Even though we're only in January. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The thing that, and I think it was highlighted in the last game Denver played. Who did they beat the Chargers? I forgot who it was. They beat the West. Yeah, they I beat the Chargers. The Chargers. There was a couple of plays where Manning audible into a running play that just gashed the Chargers. And that's the kind of thing only Peyton Manning can do. Peyton Manning studies so much film. He's got such a vast, expansive knowledge that there are things he sees on the field. Even though there's obviously a chasm in, in arm strength between he and Brock Osweiler, and Peyton Manning is maybe, maybe 50% of the player he was just two years ago, his ability to read defenses is, is invaluable. So even though he can't hit the 60-yard post pattern anymore, just his ability to audible out of a certain coverage, his ability to identify the blitzer, his ability to identify the nickel guy, the guy who's going to drop back into coverage, the guy who's going to rush the passer, those are the kinds of things that you can't put a price tag on. So just that alone would scare me as a Steelers fan. Of course, the physical realities are such that if he can't throw the ball 30 yards, then that's going to be a problem. I mean, no matter how smart you are, you do have to be able to deliver football. And that's what ultimately, and I'm not comparing Tim Tebow to Peyton Manning, but that's essentially what got Tim Tebow out of football was he could not make accurate, consistent throws, right. particularly after a certain distance. He just couldn't do it. He doesn't have the throwing motion. He just doesn't have the accuracy. So as great as Tebow mania was, and unfortunately I was the final victim of that wave, there are certain physical inevitabilities that you have to confront as an NFL player and as a quarterback you have to throw the ball up to at least 50 yards with lethal accuracy, or else you're not going to be playing. Yeah, and he did not have that. I think he should be on the roster. I think he should be on the roster just because I think he's certainly at least good enough to be a number three quarterback. I think it's ridiculous that he's not on the roster. And his leadership and his decency and his character alone, I think, should get him on the NFL team. But I understand why he's not a starting quarterback. It's unfortunate for a lot of starting quarterbacks as well when they have incredibly awful games. There's always people that go, and Tim Tebow's sitting home without a job. That was a lot of chatter on Twitter when Brian Hoyer had that performance on Saturday. You're telling me Tim Tebow couldn't have did better than that? So people are will always bring that up, but I think he's enjoying wearing a suit and getting to talk about college football without having to get pounded and, and yeah, scrutinized. Yeah, and, and, and Tebow's not as good as Ryan Mallett. I mean, really? Come on. Right. So what do you think? Should we throw down something on this game, like a beer or something? Since I'm in the city all the time, it seems every weekend I'm either in Manhattan or Astoria. So, I Well, could... you know, I'm, I was born at night, but not last night, so you know I have to check, <laughs> I have to check the spreads. The spread? Well, we could just go straight uh, up if you don't want to do this. Before we say anything, before we say anything I'm going to take a guess, and I have not seen anything yet. I'm going to guess Denver three and a half. Let me, let me see what I just saw on CBS Sports. Now I I'm believe, looking. Now I'm early looking. Ones. I'm looking now. Now I'm officially looking. They've got Denver for oh, this one. Five and a half. Five and a wow. half, right. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they assume. That we don't know if Ben's playing. Right. Antonio Brown. Yeah. So now it's, it's five and a half kind of up in the air, I guess. That's the safest thing they could do. So we don't have to pick 
our game based on spread. We could just go who wins, who loses, because... You actually want me, if you're a 10-point favorite, you want me to bet the money line. You know what? If it, that now, that dumb. now that you mentioned it that way, I guess no. We 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 should probably keep the spread in yeah, for that I instance. Think so. Especially if things go. Win, you want me to bet ten? You want me to bet win lose without Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, because see, Andrew it, Jones and Mike Vick, right? Because once once this goes live, things may change. So you're right. I guess for no, right no, now. How about, this? how about we take Emmanuel Sanders, Demarius Thomas, and let's see, Ronnie Hellman off the game, Oof. and then we'll bet. How about that? We're gonna have to throw the ball to Vernon Davis. Vernon <laughs> Davis. There's Owen Daniels on the team anymore. Well, no, Owen Daniels is still there. He's really the only reliable tight end, but they brought in Vernon Davis, and I think the only thing he's done since then is drop drop passes. He's got about six crucial drops this season, which is pretty impressive. What happened to Vernon Davis? I have no idea. how good he used to be? So we'll have to do the spread then. We'll take whatever the spread is before the game starts on Sunday afternoon. All right, that's perfect. That's fine. I was like, what kind of sucker does he think I am? Wow. <laughs> See, when I said straight up in my mind, I'm thinking you have Big Ben and Antonio Brown. But then if we did that and they ended up going down, I would be in the clear pretty much. And that's not fair at all. When would you ever come back on my no. show? You'd say, forget that guy. Yeah, I mean, you talk about a fleecing. I mean, my God. You're right. That was an, an arm robbery. Disrespectful, as Stephen A. Smith would say. So right now it's at five and a half, but I'm sure that's going to change based on what we hear from injuries from both teams. Right. And, you know, as the week goes along, we'll be in touch, I'm sure. We're monitoring the point spread and such. Absolutely. Ben Davis is only 2,900 on the the fantasy tip. I wonder if I should take him this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) That's up in the air. You know what I could bring you to is if you lose, I'll bring you some uh, Joe Paterno 409 beer. Oh, my God. Did you just say Joe Paterno? (laughs) Wow. I thought we were friends. That's one of the local breweries made a Joe Paterno 409 I beer. I thought we were friends, man. <laughs> wow. No, I wouldn't bring you that. Now that I'm becoming more developed in the city, I know there's a lot of a lot of tasty beers out there. I can't be going down to that. Well, you could buy exactly Yingling here true. for like a dollar a can, but that's, that's and just... And it's because it's made there, right? Yeah, it's it's made in PA. That's so weird. But why, what made you think of saying that? Because that's actually my favorite beer. Why did you say Yingling? Because it's it's a local beer here. Yingling's one of your favorite beers? Wow. No, it's my favorite beer. I love Yingling. Wow. Yeah, Yingling is like tap water down here. It's it's Coors Light, Miller Light, Bud Light, and Yingling, always on draft. You... I don't know why people, more people don't drink it. I love it. Oh, it's, it's really great. Do. And it's, like I said, here it's you can get a 12-pack for like $14. So it's and isn't it like the oldest brewery in this in the country or something? Yeah, isn't it like one of the oldest beers? I believe it's the oldest brewery, but I'm not in the sure. History of the world, you mean? Wow. Well, it might not be in the history of the world, but they always say it's the oldest brewery on their commercials. I don't know if that's that's true. Or not. I think it says it on the bottle too, on the six pack or something. Yeah, it's in Pottsville, PA, which for me is it's Pottsville. It's not incredibly far from me. So. Okay, Pottsville is on 209, top of 81. Okay, yeah. So if Denver covers the spread, well, I should say this. If Pittsburgh covers the spread, I owe you at least one Yingling lager. And that will mean more to me because it's your favorite beer and it's it's a local. All right, so what? I would get you like a Brooklyn lager? Yeah, you, you can get me local. a Brooklyn lager because I, I do enjoy okay. Brooklyn lager. I've had more than enough of that. It's good. The good. way Brooklyn Lager is in New York is the way Yingling is in Pennsylvania and 
in my part. So. All right, so if I win, then you'll come to my tavern, which is in Manhattan, and then if you win, we'll go to your tavern in Astoria, wherever it is you like to go. My spot is on the Upper West Side, so 96th Street in Amsterdam. Okay. It's called the Dive Bar. Perfect name. Isn't it? It's a perfect name, isn't it? Dive Bar. So you're a regular well, Believe it or not. Well, believe it, well, not as much now because I live in, technically I live in Jersey now, but the dive bar is actually a bit of a play on words. It's not, they don't name it that because it's a skanky joint, but because it's a, it's a scuba themed place. So oh, dive really? means water. Yeah. Nice. All right. If the Steelers cover the spread, I owe you a yingling lager in the dive yeah. bar. And if Denver covers, Absolutely. I can get a Brooklyn lager at whatever dive bar I so Frankly, choose. Frankly, I think, I think we're being a little cheap. But shouldn't it be more than one beer? Yeah, well, it doesn't just have to be one. It could be right. until, until our heart's content. We could set the over-under right. for that at three and a half, depending on how the night's going. That's right. We should have an over-under on the beer, too. Exactly. <laughs> You're right. We'll fit that into the equation, too. And this won't be negative or positive. We could put the over-under for the beer based on the over-under of the actual game. So it's really not hurting, okay. hurting us at all. Like this is, this so how would one reflect the other? How do we translate the numbers? That's a good question. I guess it depends on how many so beers. So if the over-under is 37, how do we do that? 3.7 beers? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to come up with that. You're, you're a better math guy than I am. Okay. But we won't just put it, we won't that. just put it at just one. I mean, we could do touchdowns, which could get ugly okay. or Fair not enough. as bad. Right. But those ways aren't necessarily fair. I think it's going to be a low-scoring game, to be honest. Yeah, me too. So that we might not win out on that either. One of us is getting some sort of reward for either Denver adult or beverage. the Steelers winning. We're getting an adult beverage of our choosing, and it will be local to one of us. So it'll be enjoyable. Absolutely. We'll see what happens. Looking forward to it. Sir. On that. Another, we have to figure out the over-under based on the over-under. Right. We'll be in touch for that just to see how many how many we will be enjoying. One, two, and three. And I'm going to monitor the point spread very closely, so I don't think you're going to pull a fast <laughs> no, one on me. I don't. I, I can't believe you wanted me to bet the money line. I'm telling you. you this, think I'd buy that? No, this was with Big Ben, Antonio Brown, like a healthy lineup in mind. But now I realize that. you already knew that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I, I realize now if things go awry throughout this week and we find out late Saturday night or early Sunday morning that both are inactive, right. it'd be like, oh, no. And, and it's at Denver. Could you imagine if this game were in Pittsburgh and you were without Demarcus Ware and without Von Miller and without Emmanuel Sanders? And I said to you, oh, let's just put the money line. You'd be like, please, stupid. That's asking for a little bit too much confidence. I forget that we're in the sports industry. I'm not talking to just some schlep off the street. Right. I actually work for CBS, not Grandma's Basement Blog. (laughs) I'd say say you know you're doing a little bit more. All right, sir. Thank you again for the time. I really appreciate it. It was great talking football as far as baseball is concerned. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And let's let's... do that. I can't get enough football, man. So name the time. We'll talk football. You got it. Sounds good. Thanks for the time, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, brother. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can find more episodes of the show at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can also find more episodes of the show by subscribing to The Bridge on iTunes. Next show, we'll be back with more reaction on the NFL playoffs and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports.